Hello, hello. My name is Dr. Rachel Gainsborough, and I am obsessed with all things short-term rentals, revenue streams, and helping you navigate your career, real estate, and your busiest and most wonderful seasons of life. I'm an immigrant, a pharmacist, a wife, and a mom who took one guest room rental and turned it into a multi-property seven-figure real estate business, which has also landed us on TV. I'll teach you the real secrets and everything you need to build a short-term rental business that you love. I discuss the hard topics, mistakes I've made, and the mistakes others have made so you don't have to make them for yourself. Financing, automations, acquisitions, low occupancy, scaling, and building your team all while balancing your life are all subjects to be discussed here. Consider me that one best friend you can come to with your short-term rental business questions. So grab your coffee, get comfortable as you get ready to learn and grow with me. This is the Luxury Short-Term Rental Doctor podcast. I am just so grateful to have you with us, Tom. Oh my goodness. And we know that the hot topic is everyone is a little bit concerned with what's going on with the interest rates, They're going to wait to buy real estate, but we know what Warren Buffett says, buy real estate and wait. So leveraging tax strategy, I think it's going to be a smart play, especially for those who have those nice, hearty W-2s who can leverage some of those passive losses. But you tell us all about it. I know bits and pieces for of it. Last week, I did an overview, Tom, and I went over just high level, the changes from year to year, 2022 versus 2023 versus 2024, what the legislation is saying at the moment. And I also went over that table that you are so kind to take a look at and audit who are the different real estate tax support team members that you need to have and at which stages you need to have them. Some you want to have in your corner now. Some are transactional. Some, once we get to an income level, when we talk about CFO right now, as a small business owner who's starting out, you are your own CFO. But talking about the levers of both the compliance side and the strategy side, these are two different like mindsets as it relates to taxes. So definitely excited that you're here with us, Tom. Why don't you take it away and introduce yourself to the people? Because I know a few people may not have met you quite yet. All right, will do. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's, it's an honor to be here with everybody. So quick overview of my background. My name is Thomas Castelli. I'm a CPA. I'm also a certified financial planner. And I've had the pleasure over the last five years or so to work with hundreds. Like I, I, I stopped counting after I think two or 300, but hundreds of investors on all different types of tax strategies to help them reduce their taxes. I do specialize in real estate, so I've helped people with short-term rentals, long-term rentals, multifamily, you name it. I've seen it. What's really been hot over the last few years um, is the short-term rentals, is Airbnbs, VRBOs, the short-term rental space in general. And really, not only is it a great investment, if you invest right from a cash flow perspective, cash flow much better than long-term rentals in many cases, but it also has amazing tax benefits. I think that's where we're going to get into some of the tax benefits. So I'm really excited to dive in there. Awesome. Awesome. And so your background, Tom, you are a CPA. You are, are you also an enrolled agent or do you have to be one versus another? I don't even know. Tell us. Yes. So a CPA CPA can do audits and can do taxes and can do pretty much everything. And EA is for tax specifically. So most of the time, 
once you have your C, if you have your CPA license, the EA becomes unnecessary for it. Gotcha. Yeah, just, uh, just CPA. Okay. And very important because when I was going through the table that we spoke about last week, we could share that a little bit. I said the very first hire that you need to have is a CPA. If you're doing your own taxes and you are not, that is not your cup of tea. That is not your, um, your area of expertise. Please stop right away. <laughs> you need to enroll a CPA or an EA to make sure that someone else is doing your taxes. And the second hire is once we start to get some cash coming in, I mentioned bookkeeper, right? What are your thoughts? Am I close? What are your, what do you think, Tom? Yeah. I think once you start getting to real estate, you definitely need a CPA to do your taxes. Things get more complicated once you start to, to enter rental properties into the equation, especially when you're dealing with short-term rentals. As for a bookkeeper, absolutely. They say that one of your first hires on your business, like a CPA is more of a contract type of relationship. If you will, you're not hiring a CPA necessarily to work on your team, but they say when you start a business, the first two hires should make usually an executive assistant or an assistant of some sort and a bookkeeper. And that's definitely mm -hmm. true because at the end of the day, bookkeeping is, is critical to your business. It's critical to understanding the financial performance of your business and being able to ascertain that information. But it's also critical to make sure you're maximizing your tax deductions. And at the end of the day, and even if you are an accountant, you're in business, you probably don't want to be doing your books anyway. You want to get that out of the way off of your plate so that you can be focusing on what's really going to drive uh, the growth of your business, which is going to be usually finding new deals, managing the deals you already have, making sure they're optimized, as well as, in some cases, raising capital, things of that nature, business development activities, not bookkeeping. Awesome. Awesome. I absolutely love that. So Tom, the elephant in the room is that interest rates are so high. Why are we even talking about real estate? Yeah. Yeah. So real estate, real estate, it's all about the numbers, right? That's what it comes down to. So let me just start there. I'll dive into tax in a second. And it's always, can the deal work, right? Can you cash flow with the deal or, or are you comfortable going negative, but can you cash flow with the deal? So if you can cash flow in the higher interest rate environment, then you should be doing these deals all day. That's a theory, especially if you're investing in a good market, it's going to expect long-term appreciation, but really it's also the tax benefits, right? It's when you buy a short-term rental property, you need to take losses and these losses are paper losses and i can explain that a little bit more thanks to an expense called depreciation and should i just go you want me to go through the history real quick why we, why this all matters okay so yes, please. yeah so way back in so let me say this so if you buy a rental property you buy a long-term rental property right and you have a loss on that long-term rental property unfortunately the losses can only offset income from other rental properties or other passive activities and rental properties are passive by default so the way this all came into place was way back in the 80s, before the, there was, a there was a, an act called the Tax Reform Act of 1986, and that made all rental activities passive by default, and that means that you can only take the losses from rental activities against other passive income, like I just mentioned. Before this 1986 act, you were able to just buy a long-term rental property and just basically take these losses that are generated by depreciation against your income. And people back, people back in the 80s, they didn't like that. They thought it was it was very controversial. So that's why they passed this act. And up until 1994, you weren't able to take losses at all. So the way these losses work, I guess, let me stop here and explain that. When you have a piece of real estate, you might there's an expense called depreciation. And depreciation is a non-cash expense. Some people call it a phantom expense because it only exists on paper. It doesn't actually reduce your cash flow. So to paint a picture of an example of this. Let's just say for easy math, you had $10,000 in rental income. 
So this is income that you receive from your tenants or your guests in the short-term rental window. And uh, let's say you had $6,000 of hard expenses. And what I mean by hard expenses, these are repairs, maintenance, utilities, property management fees in some cases, fees you might pay an attorney or you might pay an accountant to prepare your taxes or whatever the case is. So let's say you had $6,000 of this, right? So that would leave you with $4,000 of net income or cash flow. And in many businesses, you're just going to pay tax on that $4,000 and that's it. But in this business, there's something called depreciation. That depreciation expense comes in and let's just say your depreciation expense was $5,000 and that's really low. It can actually be a lot higher. And I'll talk about how to increase it in a little bit. But what that first thing is going to, what's going to happen is you're not going to pay tax on that rental income because now you have a thousand dollar loss, right? So you had $10,000 of rental income, $6,000 of expenses. These are expenses that left your pocket. Now you have $4,000 left, but you enter this depreciation expense for $5,000 and now you're at a loss for tax purposes of a thousand dollars. So the first thing this accomplishes is it ensures you're not paying tax on your rental income, right? That's one of the greatest benefits of real estate to begin with is you don't have to pay tax on your rental income in many cases, but now you have this loss. In our little example here, we have a thousand dollar loss. And if you had a long-term rental, it would be passive by default and you wouldn't be able to use it. But with short-term rentals, there's an exception to the definition of rental activities. And the exception says that if you have an, a property with an average stay of seven or less, or you have an average stay of 30 days or less, and you provide substantial services, and substantial services are things you'd find in a hotel, like daily, daily cleaning while the guest is there, daily meals, guided tours, you're providing like, excessive amounts of equipment, anything that you find in a hotel environment that's generally considered substantial, and that would make, that would open up this exception that says you're not a rental activity, that your short-term rental is not a rental activity, and that means you do not, it's not passive by default. And what you have to do from there is you just have to materially participate. And materially participating um, is you're actively involved. In many cases, you're actually self-managing the property. So in other words, you don't have a property manager, but there's a few tests that you have to pass. There's one of seven tests you have to pass. And I'm not going to go through all seven tests and bore everybody with the nitty gritty. There's really only three tests that are really going to be relevant to most people in the short-term rental space. And that is you're spending more than 500 hours on the activity, or you're spending more than hundred hours on the activity and no one other individual. So human being, to be clear, some confusion out there sometimes spends more time than you, or you're doing substantially everything yourself. So you're a one person show, very little to no outside help is coming in. You meet one of those three tests, your losses on the short-term rental will be non-passive. Now, if I could just go into a brief real world example of this, let's just say that you, let's just say that you bought a property for $500,000, right? Land is never depreciated. So you have to allocate a certain portion of that property's purchase price to land. It's usually done with a property tax card or an independent third-party appraisal. They'll carve out the land value, but let's just say it's 20% for the sake of this conversation. So 20%, so you'd have $400,000, which would be considered the building's value. Now, generally, what you would do is you'd have a cost segregation study performed. And a cost segregation study is when an engineer comes down to your property, surveys the property, and breaks it down into its individual components. For properties that are a million dollars or less, there's software that can do this for you. It's a lot less expensive. But the point is they're breaking down the components of your property. Because when you buy the property of the land, you have the building, 
but the building isn't just the walls and the structure. You have all the components that go within the building, right? You're going to you're gonna have cabinets, you're going to have flooring, you're going to have appliances. All these things have different class lives. So when you're dealing with short-term rentals, they're generally going to be depreciated over a 39-year period. So that means every year you're taking 1 39th of the property as the building's purchase price. In this example, 80% of 500,000 is 400,000. So you'd be taking... If you divide that by 39, you're taking roughly $10,000, give or take, every year as an expense. But when you have this cost segregation study performed, it's going to break down the components into five, seven, 15, and 39-year class lives. And the five, seven, and 15-year class lives are, can be depreciated all in the first year thanks to something known as 100% bonus depreciation. And generally, anywhere between... 20 to 30% of the properties of that building, so that 400,000 in this example, can be bonus depreciated. So if we took 400,000, let's just say we take the middle of the road, we take 25%, now you have an expense, a depreciation expense of $100,000. That is substantial. That is in almost all cases going to wipe out your rental income. So even if you have a wildly profitable Airbnb, it's going to it's going to wipe out your rental income. Now, what happens to that excess loss, right? Now, because you if you're using the short-term rental loophole, again to summarize what that is, average stay of the property 7 days or less is probably most common or 30 days or less and you're providing substantial services, you bypass the definition of rental activity and now it becomes a regular business and if you're spe- if you're spending more than 500 hours on it or you're doing more than 100 hours and no one else is spending more time than you or you're doing everything yourself, these losses will be considered what's known as non-passive. It can offset your non-passive income, like W-2 income or active business income. So let's say you have this $100,000 loss, not too uncommon. This can offset your W-2 income. Let's just say you made, I'm going to pull a number out of a hat here. Let's say you made $300,000 just for the sake of math. You normally going to be paid $1,000. Now you're only going to pay tax on $200,000. I believe that puts you in a 20, depending if you're married or not, I think believe that puts you in 24% tax bracket. So $100,000 in the 24% tax bracket, that's going to save you $24,000 in taxes in this example. Now, that's substantial. If you're at the 37% tax bracket, so let's just say you're at the higher tax bracket, this $100,000 would be at the, would be worth $37,000 to you. That's substantial. That's a substantial amount of tax savings. That's that you could put that towards a down payment, towards renovations. You could take your family on vacation, buy a new car in some cases. That's a lot of money you're leaving on the table. And that's really why short-term rentals have been lucrative from a tax perspective is you can get this massive tax savings. And one more thing I'll say here is, and the reason why it's so popular in 2022 specifically, and as we head into the end of this year, is that this 100% bonus depreciation is beginning to phase out. And I know Rachel mentioned, she mentioned this on a previous presentation she did but it's phasing out to 80% in 2023. $1,000 deduction, you're only going to get an $80,000 deduction next year. Still quite powerful, still going to save you a lot of money in taxes, but it's it's just not going to be as powerful in 2023 as it is this year. As we move into 2024, it phases out to 60%, 40% in 2025, and then 20% in 2026. And then under current law, as it stands today, it's gone in 2027. So this is a ticking clock here and short-term rentals have certainly are power are powerful use for this. And it's just, you want to get in sooner rather than later. 
Oh, that was a lot of gems you dropped there, Tom, because when I was a baby real estate investor, just getting in, when I heard cost segregation studies, I only associated it with a multifamily big apartment. Yeah. So that's really exciting to me to know that that added bonus. And it's something that some people have forgotten about. A lot of people forget yeah. that with short-term rentals, you can leverage this bonus depreciation. Now is the time. I'm like, now is the time. I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but like you said, it's going to be phased out. Why not take advantage of the full benefit that is out there to be taken advantage of? So thank you for dropping those gems. Why doesn't it matter if the loss slash income is passive versus active? Yeah, that's a great question. Passive, see, the, the issue is that the passive income, can, uh, passive losses can only offset passive income. And passive income is typically from rental activities. Rentals are passive by default, meaning that unless you qualify as a real estate professional, which I can touch on if people have questions about that, then it's passive and then that's it. And then there's businesses that can be passive. If you don't, if you're not actively involved, if you're not making meeting one of these tests on a business, those could be passive too. The problem, however, W-2 income, if you have an active trader business, like you have your own medical practice or something along those lines, that's typically going to be active income. And unfortunately, this passive income cannot offset your, your, your non-passive income or your active income. And that was disallowed as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986. The problem is if you had, let's say you had this $100,000 loss and it was passive. What was going to happen is if you don't have any other passive income, it's going to, it's going to be suspended and carried forward to future years. And then at that point in the future, it can offset your future passive income, such as rental income or the gain on sale, the capital gain when you sell a rental activity or another passive activity, but it's not really useful for you today. And you want it to be useful for you today so that you can capture that tax benefit, get that tax savings in our example, for 24 or $37,000, it just depends on the tax bracket here, but let's just say it's $24,000, that's money that you can go and reinvest and earn a return on your money. I always use this example briefly is, let's just say you had $100,000. Say you owed the, the IRS $100,000, you paid them that $100,000, that money's gone, you're never seeing it again. But if you took the $100,000 back as tax saving, because you use a strategy like the one we're talking about, you can go reinvest that money and earn a return on your money. And if you had an eight, if you invested $100,000 over a 10 year period and 8% compounded return, which is pretty small for real estate, um, you should get earn returns much higher than that, but it's 8%, you're going to have a total of $215,000 at the end of that 10 year period. Now you're gonna take your $100,000 of tax principal, right? Whatever that investment you made, but you're gonna have $115,000 of profit that you wouldn't have had had you had the losses been passive, right? So that's why you want it to be passive so it can offset your active income, like your W-2 income, and you can take that money back, reinvest it, and continue to grow your wealth. That's a long answer, I'm sorry. That is so good. Thank you for answering that. How about furniture for short-term rentals? Can I depreciate it in the first year? Yep. So furniture is going to be considered five-year property and it is eligible for bonus depreciation. And I have better news too. If you the property, so I'm going to say about placing a property in service. So if you buy a property, so the place in service date is when the property is rent ready and listed for rent or available for rent. So you list it on Airbnb. Anything you do before that date, before it's listed on Airbnb, is going to be capitalized and added to the base of the property. So if you went and bought a bunch of furniture 
and put it on into the Airbnb before I mean, you put it into the property before you list it on Airbnb, you're going to capitalize it as five-year property and it's going to be eligible for that bonus depreciation. However, if you did it after the property's placed in service, there's something called the de minimis safe harbor. And the de minimis safe harbor says that if, if you have an expense, for lack of a better term, an expenditure, that's probably a good word for it, an expenditure that costs $2,500 or less, then it can be deducted in the year that you incurred that, regardless of whether it's a capital improvement like furniture or whether it's a regular expense. So if you bought a piece of furniture that costs under $2,500 after the property is placed in service, you get to expense it and you get to deduct it, which is generally more favorable than depreciating it, although it has the same net effect in that year. In the future, you're going to have, you're going to be subject to something known as depreciation recapture when you sell your property. And if you can minimize that today by using the safe harbor, that's ideal. But to answer your question directly, yes, but furniture counts as five-year property and it's eligible for bonus depreciation. Nice, nice. What are the participation requirements and is it possible to meet them as a remote owner? So yes, thanks. There's a tax court case for the remote, to answer the remote part. There's usually the IRS considers if you're remote that you're not materially participating. However, there's two things that occurred over the last few years that changed that. First is COVID, right? Everybody's working remote now. Technologies enable people to work remote and have remote businesses. So that's the first thing anybody with common sense could realize that. I'm just saying to IRS is not always so sensical. But uh, there's also a tax court case um, that where the taxpayer had split time between Chicago and Florida. They had a non-real estate related, really, it's not a real estate business, but it proves the point that you can remotely participate is the point. But anyway, so they lived in Florida and they took calls, they did faxes, they did all this stuff related to the business that was located in Chicago. They did it from Florida. The tax court sided with them saying, yes, you can still materially participate despite the fact you're being remote. Now, how do you materially participate? There's three tests, right? There's the 500 hour test. You're spending more than 500 hours on your rental property. I'm going to get into some activities that count towards material participation in a second. The second test that's relevant here is going to be you spend more than 100 hours on the activity and no one else spends more time than you. So if you have cleaners, you have maybe a repair person come to the property from time to time, you're spending more time than them, 100 hours and more time than them. And the third one is you're doing substantially everything yourself. Now, remotely, you're probably not going to use that third one I mentioned, substantially everything. You're probably going to be using either the 500-hour test or you're going to be using that 100-hour test because you're going to need to have cleaners come and clean and maybe a repair person every once in a while. At least that's my experience advising clients with it. Now, so what counts as material participation? So talking to tenants, tenants, guests, excuse me, on Airbnb or VRBO or Craigslist or wherever you're listing your properties, that time counts. Time spent, you spend repairing or repairs, maintenance, capital improvements that you do or you coordinate, and that time counts. Time spent buying furniture, if it's reasonable, like going to Lowe's and buying furniture, furnishing the place, planning to furnish the place, all that type of stuff generally will count. If you do the cleaning yourself, it will count. If you're hiring a cleaner, that stuff will count. I love that. Thank you so much. You can materially participate. And we know that guest communication alone can definitely ensure that you're spending a hundred hours or more on your property, more than a hundred than as it relates to comparing it to the others who are going to be cleaning or providing that maintenance. I hope that provided you some value. Next question. 
I just launched my STR in August. So my projected gross income is about 15K. So not so much. Is it worth it to do a cost seg study this year to take advantage of 100% depreciation? I have a W-2, which I don't think helps at all. First of all, I think that is such an amazing question because as we're speaking here, Tom, unless they're your specific clients, we're talking in generalities, but not one size fits all. So I could be bonus appreciation, cost segregation, but it's not going to be a good fit for everyone. So right. thank you for asking that question. That's such a good question. I'll let you take it away, Tom. Did she, men did she mention, uh, I might've missed it, the cost of the property? No. So, so generally speaking, just from a general perspective, if you're, if you're purchased the property this year, if you're able to materially participate in it, and you have income from a W-2 or a, an active business, it's going to make sense for you to execute the strategy in most cases. I know I've the cost irrigation study is probably the biggest aspect of it, the biggest question mark. And cost irrigation studies, if you go with a traditional study where the engineer actually comes down to your property, those usually will run you a few thousand bucks all the way up to plus, depending on the situation. But it's more expensive is the bottom line. But then there's something called a software study. There's a few companies out there that that offer them. You can Google them. You could find them. If software or desktop study, they're sometimes called. They usually run anywhere between 500 and 1,000 bucks, relatively cost-effective. And they're usually good on, on properties that are under a million dollars. And once you, if you use the software study, always recommend purchasing the audit support with it because they actually fly down to your property if you ever run into issues with the IRS. But anyway... The point is, yes, in most cases, it's going to make sense to do it. If you have a property that's under a million dollars, take a look into the software or the desktop studies, much more cost-effective, and you're going to want to take advantage of 100% bonus depreciation while you can. And I'll even say this, even if you can't materially participate, even if it's going to be passive for you, it still makes sense to do that this year in many cases because you want to lock in that bonus depreciation, the 100% bonus depreciation, because it will help you offset rental income in the future years. When you have ultimately sell the property, those losses can help offset that. So it, it would make sense in most cases as a general statement. Oh, that was a great bonus tip right there, Tom. So even if you can't materially participate this year, that is a benefit to go ahead and go through the process. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What exactly is the process you should go through to, to lock that in? Yeah. Yeah. So it comes back to being passive, right? If you can't mm -hmm. materially participate, the losses will be passive. And if you do the cost segregation study, you're going to get the bonus depreciation. You're going to generate this loss. This loss, your accountant, right? Because you're going to hire a CPA or an EA to do your taxes, is going to report down your tax return on Form 8582. So always check if you always check with Form 8582. That's where your passive losses are. You want to make sure it's carried forward each year. But this passive loss can be carried forward on Form 8582. And next year, let's say you have passive income next year, that loss is going to help offset the passive income from next year uh, or the year after that. It'll keep getting carried forward until either one of three things happen. Either a, you use it all from your rental income. B, you sell the property. It's going to offset your capital gains. It's going to offset the capital gain on the sale at that point. Or three, unfortunately, you pass away. Then you're not. Then it gets. Then it. Then that's it. But the point is, you have it forever. It's going to be useful at some point. You don't have to do much besides the cost segregation study. And I give a quick example. I'm not a real estate professional, and I use this on a long-term rental. But I had a property that I sold. I was going to have a capital gain. 
I'm like, oh, I don't really don't want to pay this capital gain. I invested in another property. I took that loss from that property and used it was a partnership, but it took the loss from it and used it against that capital gain and didn't have to pay tax on it. Saved me a bunch of money. I was able to go reinvest it. So that's a practical example, even from the passive side. But if you could do it as non-passive, it's even more powerful in many cases. I love it. I love it. I know one thing that I don't know if we'll be able to go deep into is real estate professional status. A lot of those like me who are in the medical profession, we're looking for ways to offset some of our W-2 income. And although we may not qualify for real estate professionals, sometimes we'll get a spouse to do it if they're willing <laughs> if they're willing and able. But this is why I love, love, love short-term rentals so much. But we do have a question real quick. I'm a real estate agent. So can I write off everything regardless of passive or active? So I'll go into that briefly because it's going to go into real estate professional status. The real estate professional status, if you work more than 750 hours in a real property trader business and more than half of your total working time, and that's where tr most people get tripped up with the real estate professional status and more than half your total working time because most people can't spend more than half their total work time, myself included, in real estate. And that's why the short-term rental loophole is attractive. But if you do that, you spend 750 hours and more than half your total working time, you could take the losses from your long-term rentals as non-passive against your W-2 or active in business income. Now, your spouse can also do this. And if your spouse qualifies, then you both qualify. But there's about 11 real property trades or businesses and being a and brokerage or being an agent is one of them. So you can get, you can spend your time in that business and you'll be able to qualify. However, there is another requirement. You have to also materially participate in your rental activities. So let's say that you were a full-time real estate agent and you easily met that 750 hour and more than half your total working time requirement. And you spent no time on your rentals, no time on your, on your long-term rentals, but you couldn't take the losses. You have to meet one of those seven, but again, the three are still relevant. 500 hours, more than 500 hours, you do a hundred or you do a hundred hours and no one else spends more time than you, or you do everything, you still have to meet that requirement on your long-term rentals. So even if you are an agent, even if you meet that requirement, you qualify as a real estate professional, you check that box, you still need to be able to materially participate. Now, one more thing I want to throw in there is, in our firm, we're, we hate this and we're against this. We think it's wrong. We have a lot of other tax professionals who, are, who understand this area of tax code who also are against this, but there's two tax court cases. There might even be three at this point where the taxpayer, where short-term rentals do not qualify as real property trades or businesses for the purposes of the real estate professional status. So you have, and we don't agree with it. We think it's wrong. A lot of people think it's wrong, but the, the, it is what it is at this point. Short-term rentals are its own little island. It's not basically considered a real estate business. And that's what makes a short-term rental loophole work too, is that to an extent, but so can you write off everything? So here's what have to happen to write off everything. You need to qualify as a real estate professional. You need to materially participate in your long-term rental activities. And then you'd also need to materially participate separately in your, in your short-term rentals, if you, assuming you had all of them. That's what would need to happen. Wow. I didn't know that, Tom. Like, where have I been? I didn't know that. Oh my goodness. It's okay. Very nuanced. We didn't know it at the beginning too. We just thought yeah. it, we, we, we assumed because what else... And this is what all the tax professionals think. It's like, if it's not a real property trader business, then what is it? But <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Wow. Okay. So the next question says, what about furniture? 
and expenses for arbitrage properties. Oh my goodness. And this is an, a very controversial area as well. I have all aspects of short-term rental investing. I have primarily buy and hold, a couple of arbitrages due to my son, 14-year-old who wanted to start, and some co-hosting deals. But I'm not a big raw arbitrage girl because I know that a lot of the tax savings that really help offset my W-2 came from the purchases. But Tom, what is there out there for those who are primarily operating as arbitrage, which is the let to let or the lease to lease, master lease? You've heard of it, right? Yeah, it's like you're basically subleasing, right? Subleasing your property out. You're you're leasing it, then subleasing it. Yeah, unfortunately, the depreciation there is scarce because there's no property to actually depreciate because you don't actually own the property. But you, if you bought the furniture for it, you could certainly deduct that. That would still be five-year property for business activity. You'd still have to materially participate in the business activity to make this all work. That's the key, right? If you have a regular business like short-term rentals or the Airbnb at this or the arbitrage, it could be passive if you do not meet one of those tests. So you have to meet one of those tests. And that goes for any business. And if you did that, well, you could buy a bunch of furniture that would be eligible for bonus depreciation or the safe harbor depending on when you buy it and place in the service, then you'd be able to get that deduction. Oh, that is great news. That is great news for arbitrage, especially furnishings aren't cheap. (laughs) I pay an interior designer to furnish my unit. I usually get an invoice of approximately 15K, not itemizing the furniture and household items. What would be the best way to write this off tax-wise? Okay. So it's always going to come down to whether or not it was placed in, when the property was placed in service and when you had this done. If it was before the property was being rented out, it's going to be the entire invoice because it's it's going to be classified as personal property. That's just going to be added to the basis of your property and depreciated as five-year property and eligible for bonus depreciation. However, and it's going to be this done the same way in, in this case, after you place the property in the service, because there's no breakdown, right? So the way the minimum safe harbor works, the what I mentioned before, um, it's $2,500 per invoice line item. So if you get a big invoice for interior decorating, includes all the furniture and just says, boom, 15K, for example, then it has to be capitalized because we don't have the invoice line item. But if it broke down, okay, couch, $1,500, and I'm just making up expenses here, couch, $1,500, love seat, $1,200, and I don't know, paintings and all this other stuff, and it broke it all down. whatever. Now you have invoice line items less than $2,500. And if you did this after the property was placed in service, you can expense it under the minimus safe harbor. And that requires an itemized invoice. Awesome. Appreciate that response. If I did a major renovation before I put the property in service, how do I categorize all these expenses in my bookkeeping? All the Home Depot purchases and the payments to contractors, a lot of amounts, about $1,500 per week. Yeah. So that's going to be a tough question to answer because we're getting into a lot of details that we would need to see. And this is why you want to hire a bookkeeper. Seriously, this is exactly why you'd want to hire one. So effective is the easy way to do it. You just book it all to capital expenses. That's okay. You could do that. Probably not the ideal way. What's going to happen is you're going to have to go down item by item and pretty much figure out, is this a repair? Did she mention, I forgot, was it placed in service yet or not? 
I did a major renovation be- before I put okay. the property in service. Okay. So it's it, the bottom line is it's all going to go towards capital expenditures in many cases. Now, and your tax accountant, when you file your tax returns, will typically be able to break it down if you provide them the invoices and everything into five, seven, 15 or 15 year property or 30, five, seven, 15 or 39 year property. They should be able to break that down for you. It would be easier if you did that for, if it'd be easier for them, if you did that for them, however, you'd have to sit down there and actually break. You'd have to know what each type of renovations classified as, and that there's no real easy way to find out, unfortunately, as you actually have to go into the regulations and go dig in and actually, in that case, be a bookkeeper or be an accountant to be able to figure that out on a line by line item basis. Sorry, I was not be able to help that much there. It's just, that's a nitty gritty type of question. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good one too. And I just love the amount of education you put out there. Please be sure to follow the real estate CPAs. The Facebook group is essentially free, right, Tom? We can just go in there. You guys just drop gems every single week. I love the way you just answer our random questions. (laughs) It's just such an amazing resource. And I'm just so grateful for it. So definitely follow up with the real estate CPAs. There's so much value in there. I was telling the members of my community, I saw an email that came out about real estate professional status and storage facilities. Oh my gosh, I didn't think of that. And I don't want to talk about storage facilities right now. (laughs) I may need to buy one. I may need to own one because the struggle is real some days with it. Okay. Next question. Are there, and you know what? I wanted to take a step back real quick. I think it's so important what you said about real estate age. We just uh, assume, you know, that real estate agent, you, you meet all of the requirements automatically. And I was telling a member of my community, who's an agent that I rumor has it, there are a few more boxes that she had to tick off, but I didn't know what they were, but I felt like It's not what I thought it would have been (laughs) based on something that I had heard. So I'm so grateful to have you here with us, Tom, because I tell everyone I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax accountant and none of those things. So thank you for being the CPA on here and the tax strategist on here for us. Okay. Next question says, are there tax implications for the type of loan used, commercial, DSCR, et cetera? Ooh, that's a good one. So we get this question a lot. The interest, so if you, there's something called the interest tracing rules under the tax code. And it says that wherever the debt proceeds of a loan is used is how the interest is going to be classified. So if you use it for a short-term rental, it's going to be classified as business interest and it's going to be deductible as such on the, on for the STR. So it's going to be tax deductible. Another question I get a lot, and I'll just throw this in here because I think it probably, someone's probably going to ask this at some point or thinking about it. It doesn't matter what kind of loan you get from the bank. The IRS doesn't care. It doesn't matter if the bank classifies it as a secondary home loan or a vacation home loan. If you're renting out the short-term rental because it's a rental act, because it's a business activity at this point, it's the interest can be tax deductible. The IRS does not care about the bank's classification of it. Oh, I love that. And I know this is not the next question, but this leads me to the next question which is am I able to leverage the, these loopholes if I'm an individual versus set up as a business entity, that's the other one that I get asked all the time as well. What about you, Tom? Do you get that question sometimes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some people ask, do you have to be an entity to use this? The answer is no. The short answer is no, and I'll break it down a little bit. If you buy a property, you buy a short-term rental in your personal name, you're 
pretty, you're good to go with the strategy. You're good. If you use the things I said before. Now, if you bought, you have an LLC, LLCs can be taxed in a few different ways. LLC can be taxed as a sole proprietorship, or in other words, sometimes it's called disregarded. The LLC is at that point, just for legal purposes, it's going to be reported on your tax return, your form 1040, as if the LLC didn't exist. So that, in that case, you're good to go. Now you have LLCs that are taxed as partnerships. You can absolutely use the short-term rental loophole within a partnership. However, I will say this with a partnership, usually there's more than one partner. There's more than one partner. And if there's more than one partner trying to use the short-term rental loophole, you might run into some issues. And the reason is for this. Only, remember, there's three tests. You're doing substantially everything. If you have two partners, one individual cannot do substantially everything because there's two people by the, at least two people by default. The, the third test, uh, the, sec- oh, the, the second test I mentioned before is you're spending more than 100 hours and no one else spends more time than you. Guess what? Only one person can get that test then because you can't have two people spending more time than each other. This is impossible. So that leaves you with the 500-hour test. And then to use that in a partnership, you'd have, you both have to spend at least 500 hours or more. And that's a lot of time to spend on a short-term rental. So if you have multiple short-term rentals in a partnership, that might actually be possible. But in my experience, not many, not, it, frankly, none <laughs> have been able to prove that. I think they're able to spend a thousand hours on it between two partners. So it's just something to keep in mind. And then if you have an S corporation, the same thing as a partnership, but in an S corporation, you could be the only person. So it's still possible. Although I would not recommend an S corporation in this instance. So you're going to either want to use your personal name that's legal and insurance for you for outside of my wheelhouse, um, or you're going to want to use an LLC that's disregarded. It's just you, or you want to use an LLC tax as a partnership, but just keep in mind that partnership aspect is there with the short-term rentals. Tom, what I love about what you do, not only do you provide tax strategy for members of the real estate community, you also provide some education. And I know you guys have an awesome podcast as well. The, remind me of the name. Yeah, the, tax, <laughs> the Tax Smart Investors Podcast. We release an episode every week. I think we have 200 and something episodes at this point. Really great. A lot of short-term rental stuff on there. That's the Tax Smart Investors Podcast. So you could get it wherever podcasts are found. Awesome. So if you guys find found some value, please be sure to jump in, follow Tom, follow Brandon Hall, check out the podcast. They really drop gems in such a generous way. So appreciate you so much, Tom, for jumping in with us. So love you guys to the moon and back. I cannot wait to connect with you next week. Bye-bye for now. 